Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Hello and welcome back to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Aaron Gash-Burnett, a journalist specializing in German politics. And Aaron, we've often said that this relationship between Germany and Poland is a challenging one, but it's especially critical to get right, given Russia's current war against Ukraine and uncertainty about how Europe's future looks. Poland's support for Ukraine in particular and the recent elections, which left us with the possibility of a new uh, but complicated governing coalition in Warsaw that Berlin might be able to work with if it wants to, raise possibilities but also obstacles, don't they, Aaron? Well, that is one of the key questions, uh, isn't it, Ben? Um, does Berlin really want to, as you just said? And that's something uh, we got into in our last episode. But as you say, this is a key relationship at a time of opportunity. So we wanted to get into it a little bit more. Now, listeners, if you haven't heard our first Poland episode yet, we do encourage you to check it out as we're going to be picking up uh, many of the themes we spoke about there on today's episode and going into them in a little bit more detail. To help us do that, today we're joined by Ambassador Wolf Nickel, uh, Vice President both here at the Council and the Germany-Poland Institute. Uh, and Rolf is a former German ambassador to Poland, among many other senior government and diplomatic roles he has held. Uh, he is also the author of a recent, very well-received book called Feinde, Fremde, Freunde, Germany and Poland, so enemies, strangers, friends, to translate that. Uh, Rolf, can you tell us a bit about the book and uh, why you chose to write it? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's a great opportunity to share with your listeners my thoughts on Poland and the German-Polish relationship. I wrote the book primarily because I think that there is not much or not enough knowledge about Poland in Germany. The other way around, Poles know a lot more about Germany. So uh, that was the first reason. The second reason, Poland is getting more and more important in Europe in, in terms of defense, in terms of uh, also economically. So I thought it was a, was a good idea to, to talk about this and to tell uh, German listeners and German readers uh, how that could fit in into our foreign policy. And the third important part is uh, this book is a mea culpa because I participated in the German foreign and security policy for 40 years and I have seen our Eastern policy uh, and our energy security policy down the drain. And uh, even though I was not uh, the one who decided or amongst the ones who decided about this policy, I helped to implement it, and um, so uh, it's to a certain extent um, um, saying that uh, what what we did was was wrong, why it was wrong, and what we should do to 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 mend fences again. And um, I mean, there's a lot to say about what Poles should do, but there's also a lot to say about what Germans should do. So uh, this is really now. Uh, for me, a window of opportunity uh, because of the elections uh, and everything that's connected with that. Uh, I think there's a lot to be done together to face the different challenges 
together. I'd like to hear more about that. You say um, we'd like to hear both what Germany got right in the past, but also what you just said, what it got wrong in its relations with Poland. What are the key aspects of that relationship, right and wrong? There's a number of things. Uh, first of all, um, I think it is very uh, difficult to manage uh, this kind of uh, asymmetric uh, relationship. I mean, obviously, Germany is the most populous country in Europe. It's also the uh, most economically developed country. And it has had the, the has a lot of experiences connected uh, much more to the world than, than, than Poland is in different things like G7, etc. So, um, so there are these objective differences. But unfortunately, we, we, we drew the conclusion that these objective differences uh, somehow justify a, a little bit of an arrogant attitude. And I think that was one of our first mistakes, uh, that we did not take seriously enough the arguments that were made uh, in, on the eastern flank, specifically in Poland, when it came to how to develop our relationship specifically with the eastern countries but specifically with Russia and there were there were a number of real mistakes made first of all obviously uh, the uh, mistake about the dependency uh, in energy resources from uh, from Russia that in retrospect can only be considered as a huge uh, huge mistake a fatal error in my view um, secondly we thought that uh, it was somehow possible to develop a mutually beneficial economic relationship, even though uh, Russia itself uh, became more and more of an authoritarian country and did not really show uh, any interest of developing relations beyond these uh, transactional uh, economic uh, relationship. And the third very important element is we always thought it was possible to integrate Russia into some sort of Euro-Atlantic security architecture, whatever you want to want to call it, uh, without realizing uh, that Russia was not ready and not willing to be integrated in such a security architecture. Therefore, um, uh, these were these were huge mistakes, and uh, I qualified this in my book, and I weigh my words as the strongest error in our foreign policy since uh, the beginning of the Federal Republic of Germany in 1949. And as I said, I weigh my words. So let's actually go into that a little bit, because uh, when we hear German politicians and policymakers in Berlin over the last year and a half, um, we have heard about how a lot of these kinds of mistakes that were made with respect to uh, Eastern countries, with respect to Russia, that they were somehow unforeseen or unforeseeable. I should say. Yet, um, we also, you know, we became dependent on the Russians for more than half of our gas. Um, but these are the same countries that warned us about what would happen if we if we did that. They ended up being right, and then we ended up paying the price for it. But there's plenty of, of evidence as well where the Russians, they negotiate a deal and they renege on it, uh, Budapest, Minsk. Why did it take us so long to figure that out, um, given the fact that there was so much evidence um, over the years suggesting uh, that this is something we should have realized sooner. Well, see, Aaron, history is open towards the future. And with 100% hindsight now, and looking back, it seemed as if it was everything falls into place and it couldn't have been otherwise. But that's, that's not how, how history develops. Uh, and when you are in the midst of, of developments, 
you 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 think about the next step and maybe the next step after that but to 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 think to the to the end is very is very difficult because you don't know uh, what kind of course history takes now of course there were signs like uh, Chechnya, uh, like uh, Georgia, like uh, like Ukraine in in two thousand in two thousand fourteen. So in in hindsight, in retrospect, you see it. This this is how it happened. But look, Chechnya. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not defending uh, anything here whatsoever. But but look, Chechnya was at the end something that happened within the Russian Federation. So the ones who said who defended a relationship with Russia said, "Well, this is this is uh, this is internal internal Russia." And of course, the the unproportional use of force uh, is something that that was noted at the time as well. But but Yel- in the beginning, Yeltsin did it. Uh, good old Boris, with whom uh, relationship were. Were, were quite uh, flamboyant. So then, then Georgia in 2008. At the end of the day, in the first round, it was Georgia that attacked the the, 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 the Russian soldiers there. Of course, they were provoked. But but the the argument for those who wanted to continue the relationship said, look, it was it was the Georgians who started, and then and then Russia again. Uh, uh, kind of uh, 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 reacted unproportionately, etc. And and with uh, and with uh, 2014 uh, annexation of Crimea and Donbas, there was a there was a uh, first of all relationship changed at that time. We introduced for the first time real biting sanctions. They were not strong enough, as we came to realize, but we did did do that. And uh, there was, of course, the overwhelming idea that this this war that was that threatened to to become a, a, a really big European war uh, could somehow be contained, could somehow be um, uh, uh, yeah contained in a in a in a nutshell, so to say, and that and that turned out to be a, a mistake, no no question, but. Uh, it's it's very easy with 100% hindsight to say everything must have turned out that way. It could have turned out other ways. Uh, and we, I think that the biggest mistake is what we did was we did not listen to our neighbors who who told us all the time and and who have a, a history of uh, of very bad experiences uh, with Russia. And and let's face it, for us, Russia over a longer period of history. It was an ambiguous relationship. There were times where Russia played a constructive role, for example, when it came to German unity. Uh, uh, Without Gorbachev, it wouldn't have happened. So uh, it's an easy thing to to criticize now, but I think it's a little unfair now with this 100% hindsight to do that. I would say, though, that we are, again, we are, of course, talking about our partners in the East who did end up being right upon Russia and ended up calling it right for years before we ended up realizing that that was the case. But you did also reference this just now, so I'd like to get into it a little bit. Um, We certainly, I would say, have some blind spots when it comes to our relationship with uh, countries to our east, and particularly to Poland. So um, I'd like to get into that one in particular. Uh, what do you think um, some of those blind spots are when it comes to how Germans see Poland or how Germany 
seize Poland, things we should be more aware of? First of all, we should be aware of the of the history that, that Poland has experienced over the last, uh, let's say, 250 years. Poland was uh, divided uh, uh, four times, uh, three times in the 18th century, and then later, later on, of course, in the 20th century. And it was always Prussia, Germany, or German Reich was involved in it. Yeah? So there is a, there is a history uh, that has to be taken into account. And uh, we, didn't, we didn't, do that, uh, didn't do that enough, I think. We also uh, did not take into account, in my view, enough uh, the way both countries pursue their policy objective. There's, um, there's a lot of empathy in the, in the, in the foreign policy of, of Poland. And we are different. We don't act that way, at least in general. So that is that is something that that I would also suggest now that we that we are more empathetic when it comes to to our relationship with uh, Poland and the other countries of the region. But we must now not fall into the trap of getting into a fight in front of Vladimir Putin uh, of who is the best, etc. We must defend. Uh, Europe together. And this was very difficult with the old Polish government. Now with the, with the new Polish government elected, well, we have to be very careful because, because last night the, uh, the president uh, took the, the oath of a government which will not last very long. So what I'm talking about is the new, is the, the, the probable new government. And that is a huge window of opportunity to in, in fact now get together because the policy of Zeitenwende is uh, not perfect, no, no question. But we, in a, in a very, very significant manner, turned uh, towards uh, the, the view Poland has and had uh, about Russia. And so there is a huge opportunity to work together now to defend Europe, to get, uh, to get our act together and to, and to be... Uh, strong partners in the fight against Russia and and also, of course, for the integration into the European Union. Let me pick up on that because, indeed, you've already covered several of the aspects of when Poland and Germany have been finder, when they've been enemies, and as well as the Second World War history, which we'll talk about a bit later in relation to, to reparations. You mentioned that the histories of the partitions of Poland, the histories of great powers dealing with each other, Germany and Russia, in Germany in whatever form it was, Russia in whatever form it was, acting over the heads of the Central East European countries or acting directly in them to divide them up. And so I think Germany still has some work to do to convince Poles and other Central East Europeans that it won't be doing that again, that it won't um, be ignoring the, the Zwischenländer, the lands in between those great powers. But it has got something to build on in that regard as well. There are times when Germans and Poles have been friends as well, um, Freunde, as you put it in your book, not least perhaps when you were working on Central East European policy for, for Helmut Kohl during the 1990s. Um, perhaps tell us a bit more about that time and, and what are the positive legacies to build on? In the 90s, when, when I worked for Helmut Kohl in the Chancellor's office, there was a huge opportunity because Poland was uh, yeah, probably the first country in the Eastern Bloc that turned democratic. They had the, the so-called round table. They had the, the first uh, semi-democratic elections and, uh, and a huge uh, victory of the democratic forces. 
So that created uh, the, the first huge opportunity for good neighborly relationships and reconciliation between our two peoples after the terrible uh, descent into tragedy in World War II in, in which uh, uh, Germany uh, uh, completely destroyed uh, the Polish nation and behaved uh, really in an absolutely gruesome manner. So uh, uh, there, was, there was now in 1989-1990 this opportunity. We concluded the, 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 the treaties, uh, first of all the 2 plus 4 treaty uh, for the final solution for Germany. Uh, we had the two, the two fundamental treaties, first the border treaty and then, and then the uh, so-called treaty on good neighborly relations. And they built uh, a good framework for working together. And what was particularly important that the border treaty uh, was concluded because it somehow uh, took away the geopolitical trap in which Poland found itself against the alleged uh, revanchists or revisionists from uh, from the Federal Republic of Germany. So so that was that was very important that we that that relationship was built. And Poland showed the way in Europe. Uh, uh, it showed us how you uh, get rid of a communist government. And now, in, in this year, in 2023, they somehow did the same thing. They showed to the rest of Europe how to get rid of a populist government, which is also great news for, for, for Germany and for Europe. And therefore, uh, we somehow see, uh, in my view, or could see, we should be careful, uh, uh, a, a repetition of the, of the days that we had in the late 80s and early, and early 90s. And, uh, and that is uh, good, good, very good news. I mean, there are people who are very skeptical. I'm rather upbeat about it. Uh, I called it a European spring in the middle of, in the middle of October. It's a nice way of putting it. Timothy Gartnash actually says, uh, being, being one of the most famous voices of 1989 and one of the famous chroniclers of 1989, and who was very much looking to, to Warsaw on that day, the, the uh, 4th of June, when those first semi-democratic elections were held, while much of the rest of the world was looking at Tiananmen Square, of course. Nonetheless, Gartnash and others were looking there. And he talks about those generation of 89ers, but he's also recently raised the idea of a generation of 22ers who could actually take this on and re revive this legacy. And it's very interesting you mentioned that following in the wake of the Czech possibility of getting rid of Andrei Babish, Milos Zeman and, and others, the Poles have actually done something similar, as you say, showing the way and how to get rid of a populist government. But perhaps just, just take us back to the 90s again for one moment, because one of the really concrete uh, aspects of Germany's rapprochement with Poland was supporting, eventually, EU and NATO integration. Now, that wasn't guaranteed in the beginning, but the position changed. Could you talk us through that? That's very true. In the, in the beginning, uh, a number of people, including in the Federal Republic of Germany and its government, thought we could somehow build a superstructure over the two blocks, and that turned out to be very quickly uh, impossible. But, uh, but, for example, former Foreign Minister Genscher for a long time uh, thought it was thought it was possible, and uh, it it took it took us all uh, some time to realize uh, that that it uh, we had to fulfill the wishes of the of the Eastern European of the uh, Central Europeans and others uh, to be integrated into EU and and NATO, 
And Germany actually then uh, became a leader on this. Um, there was uh, former defense minister Volker Rühe who was very instrumental in this. I think we took the turn earlier than the U.S. administration. It took a very long time for them uh, to, to get around. And so uh, for the first time in modern history, Poland and Germany, uh, uh, with the entry into the European Union and NATO, are on the same side of history. And that, and that is something that I would like to stress again, because uh, Aaron earlier on uh, voiced concern that Germany might return to its old ghosts. But, uh, but this, is, this is clearly, not, this is clearly not, in the, uh, not in the cards. What we have seen, we are on the same side of history. And we are defending our freedom. We are defending our democracy. You can always discuss whether the means that are employed are um, um, good enough, whether they are appropriate, and whether we should do more. And I would probably say, yes, we should. But, but that does not uh, say that we are not on the same side of history and defending, in defending our, our freedoms. Right. And this is something we often say on Berlin Side Out is that a lot of the criticism that's leveled at Germany at the moment, even though Germany is, is moving, it's not quite clear exactly where it's going. But some of the criticism that's leveled is precisely because the Central East Europeans and others know what value a fully team playing, fully onside Germany, throwing its weight behind the cause would bring. And so I think there's a hidden compliment in some of those criticisms, even if they, it comes across in a barbed way at, at times. But perhaps one thing then learning from history there that Germany could do to really show that it's on on the team in a serious way would be to join with the calls from Poland and others to support Ukraine's NATO membership in the way that it switched its position on NATO membership for the Central East Europeans back in the 90s. Is that on the cards? I'm not sure whether it's on the cards uh, in, the, in the short term. What we need to do is to give Ukraine the kinds of guarantees that are necessary. Now, this must be defined by, by Ukraine and it must be also also defined by us. I personally think, but that's my personal opinion, that with, when you consider all the all the options uh, for for doing that, for guaranteeing uh, security, uh, NATO membership should be a serious option. Then you have to discuss uh, what exactly uh, uh, you cover, uh, when when to do this, and so it's a it's a hugely complicated issue. And sometimes people with no responsibility whatsoever make proposals and then I'm not sure what, what comes out of it. So we have to be very careful on this. I think it's a, it's a serious option. We should consider it, but not rush to, to, to things that we regret afterwards. Indeed. But it's interesting in that regard that there are countries who are willing to push ahead as they have been throughout the course of the Ukraine war to go faster and set the pace. And one thing we've argued here before on Berlin Side Out is that as part of Germany's um, process, of exercising better leadership, learning to listen, learning to let others, as you say, show, well, show the empathy with others that you mentioned before. Learning to let others lead the lead the way and set the pace sometimes would would help. But obviously, Germany has to make the decisions that ultimately are in its own interest. Just Central Eastern Europeans might have thought that it's not been calculating those interests correctly in the past. However, as we said, the um, election of a new Polish government, not the one with a record number of female ministers, that will be the shortest-lived government 
quite some time uh, that was appointed last night and which we can expect to see the back of within a couple of weeks. Uh, but a serious new government led by Donald Tusk does offer new uh, opportunities for cooperation. But Aaron, it also comes with new challenges, doesn't it? Well, yes, Ben, certainly. And as we also heard from Rolf um, at the beginning of the episode, uh, one of those big challenges is the sheer size of the coalition that is going to be necessary um, to cobble all, all the potential uh, cooperation and reform um, together. And that Berlin's gonna, it, Berlin is potentially going to have a hard time figuring out who exactly it talks to sometimes. Um, so let's let's get into that a little bit. What are um, some of the challenges of working um, with this no coalition? Uh, also keeping in mind that um, for a long time, the Law and Justice Party has ruled uh, Poland uh, using uh, Germany as a little bit of a punching bag. So we have to consider how that may have affected domestic public opinion. What are the, some of the challenges, but what are some of the opportunities in terms of the areas of cooperation um, that w- would uh, be possible and also necessary with the new government? I think there has to be uh, some repair work to be done because of the relationship, uh, the still uh, <laughs> government in office has had with the European Union and the presumably new uh, Polish leader, Donald Tusk, has quite clearly uh, stated that he wants to uh, to draw back uh, the so-called judicial uh, reform, which resulted in uh, systematic violation of, your, of uh, fundamental principles of the European Union. So I think that Poland uh, is very willing uh, to do that, but they have to consider, of course, the fact that they operate in a surrounding that is uh, also not easy. You also already mentioned the number of parties that are in the new government. You actually have to bring together somehow, and one of the parties on the left have already have already signaled that they would vote for the investiture. They wouldn't be part of the government. So that's the that's the first thing. The second thing is. This is cohabitation. So we have a president which is still in office till May. Uh, uh, the election is in May 2025, and the president can veto basically every every law uh, project of law. And uh, and uh, in order to override it, you need a supermajority of three fifths. Uh, that is 276 seats. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, the present government uh, with 248 seats is very far away from that. So if the president decides to obstruct all legislation, um, then it will be it will be very difficult. The third element is that the uh, constitutional tribunal is packed with PIS loyalists. And uh, they have been they have been nominated for for quite, for nine years, and so uh, it's not very easy uh, to to sort of repair this uh, this system using uh, methods uh, characterized by the rule of law, uh, and not using the same methods as as the predecessors. So these are three important elements that make will make it very difficult uh, to govern, and then. Uh, I mean, from a from a point of view of law. And then, fourthly, uh, if I understand correctly, it is the um, intention of the new government to mend fences within Poland. Poland is one of the most polarized countries in the world, only topped, I believe, by by the U.S. If you want to govern over a longer period of time, and I think that's their intention, 
then you need to somehow make sure that that people come together again and so and so that's also very difficult yeah so what 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 does it all lead to i think poland will be to a large extent uh, concentrated on its domestic policy uh, because it's going to be very it's going to be difficult and um we as germans should not fall into the trap and somehow push poles now uh, to do this and that or, or or whatever we should give them time to sort it all out and also then come up how they want to develop the relationship with germany we should not push them in any way whatsoever or not give the impression that we do that on the other hand we should as as a german government we should do uh, our homework do the kinds of things uh, think very thoroughly through it what we can do together what we can offer etc and be ready when poland is ready and i've made a, a number of proposals in my book and i'm in contact with with some other people now and we are we are trying to trying to help do that that's so interesting leaving that room for poland to develop its own position on this constructively rather than lecturing about what to do would certainly be some some refreshing change in a lot of the communications that have come out of out of berlin not without cause often because of the conduct of the peace government one has to say the federal government has been very very uh, um, recalcitrant has been very reluctant to publicly criticize too much the, the, the Polish government. If you consider what the Polish government has been doing in terms of German bashing, it's sometimes quite amazing to see how how reluctant uh, German um, politicians within the government. There were others outside the government, but I mean, in democracies, you don't have control of everybody. Uh, but but within the within the government, people were, and I, I followed this this very much as an ambassador. We sometimes just uh, just bit on our tongue and, and and didn't didn't say anything. And a lot of things that were done have not come out yet. <laughs> right, interesting perspective there. Some some other former ambassadors have been less quiet in their um, their criticism of the Polish government. In a democracy, that's uh, that's one of our rights. Now, just just one thing to raise. Is there going to be a difficulty? And we've, we've talked about this with our other Polish guests recently on Berlin Inside Out, that the powers that be in Berlin won't be able to simply dismiss, even in private, the new Polish government as a hard right populist government in the way that in the corridors of power they have been in the past. And so does that mean they're going to, Berlin's actually going to have to take the substance of the critique a bit more seriously? I think that there will be certainly an attempt to work much closer together with the new government than with the old government. Because the old government uh, in Diplomacy 101 did, uh, did everything you shouldn't do when you want to de develop common policies. Uh, so uh, so I, I, I'm really upbeat about, about the possibilities. And, uh, and I think because we've, we've, because, uh, we've learned, uh, I think, from our history, uh, and Zeitenwende is, is a step in that direction, that we can't continue as we did in the past. And I'm, I'm repeating it time, time and time again, uh, that there won't be any, any coming back to business as usual. This, we are heading towards, uh, towards with, with some changes, but we're heading towards uh, Cold War 2 plus uh, 2.0. And we have, to, we have to deal with this in a, in a coherent manner Poles and Germans, but also the rest of Europe and the rest and the rest of NATO, 
And uh, I'm sure that the, that this government is uh, is of that is of that opinion. I can't speak I can't speak of of any even further government whatever and under which circumstances. But this government is firmly on this road. I fully share your analysis of where we're heading and that need to work together. And I certainly hope you're right, but it's going to take some of those concrete steps. Aaron? Polish rearmament, which we have also um, spoken about on our previous episode on Poland, uh, that we're seeing a huge, huge investment um, in uh, all kinds of military hardware and kit, uh, big orders for new Abrams tanks um, from the US and South Korea, um, all, all kinds of, of military rearmament because Poland is one of the main frontline states now um, from NATO to Russia. But one of those big areas is, of course, on the Polish Navy. Um, And this brings up the interesting dimension, of course, of Finland having recently joined uh, NATO, Sweden having applied to join. Suddenly, the Baltic Sea has become Lake NATO, as we've commonly said on this uh, podcast. And the two big states... um, Baltic Sea states, there are Poland and Germany. So this become, you know, is there a new responsibility that then comes down to um, Poland and Germany for policing uh, this sea? Um, and how do we actually uh, manage that together in terms of the cooperation that's necessary to do that as the two big states um, on the Baltic Sea from a naval perspective? Yeah, I, I agree. The Baltic Sea is, of course, an important theater for any further... Uh, conflict uh, 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 between Russia and uh, and NATO, uh, hopefully not uh, not a not a hot one, and and certainly uh, the fact that Finland has become a NATO member and Sweden hopefully soon as well, even though one with with a, with the two countries that are obstructing this, one never knows. But but it's it's heading it's heading into the right direction. And Germany has always been very active. We have been leading air policing uh, over the Baltic Sea, over the Baltic states. We have been uh, in 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 touch uh, with with the Polish government. I was present in talks about submarines. The old government would say, "Oh, nice that you want to give them to us free of charge." Um, but I mean, that's not, that's not the way, that's not the way that works. And we certainly need to do everything, but every partner in NATO, I mean, this is not a German Polish business. This is all, this is NATO altogether should, should do, should do what is necessary to defend, uh, specifically also this, but also the whole Eastern flank. So we need to do this together. We need to strengthen the Eastern flank. I mean, Germany is, is contributing to this. We, there's going to be a brigade uh, in 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 uh, Lithuania, five thousand German soldiers, uh, as soon as military buildings are there, etc. So this is this is serious. I mean, we 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 have not been uh, serious on this one as much as we should have been, clearly, and there's still there's still uh, room to do more. This is serious now. It's not, it's not something that uh, Germany is doing now and, and then when, it come, when time changes, things will be different. No, we have come to recognize that, that the future will be characterized by, by containment, by deterrence and constrainment. I don't see uh, sanctions be li- being lifted anytime soon. So this is going to be a conflictual relationship. This conflictual relationship has to be managed somehow. And the and of course the the, the the Cold War is a history of containment, but the Cold War is also a history of the Cuban Missile Crisis 1962. We should by all means also 
try to avoid by a number of measures that one can discuss that we that we go down into this in the, into this moment where where Kennedy and Khrushchev uh, looked eye to eye with each other and communicated via via uh, the, the movement of nuclear armed missiles. This new Cold War 2.0, as I said earlier, will have to be characterized by these these three things, as I said earlier, uh, containment, deterrence, and constrainment, but also by somehow ensuring that that there is that there are enough uh, channels to avoid uh, uh, accidental or other um, uh, descent into a nuclear war. And that is, I think, that is not seen uh, as much as it should be uh, right now. I totally share your assessment of the seriousness of this. But I don't think the message of how serious that is and the need for the kind of deterrence that gives you the kind of strength from which you can actually deter, the kind of strength that gives you the possibility to negotiate from that uh, that good position, the need to build that hasn't yet been fully realized, I think, in Germany to the extent it has. We still continue to see party politics being played with the budget, the potential budget for future contributions. And there's, there's something I want to particularly also point to on that front, which is in, in your book, you talk about the difficulties of shooting down Iskander and Kinjal missiles, uh, as would be stationed in Kaliningrad. This is a very frightening thing for Germans. But as we've seen in Ukraine, we can shoot those down. We can shoot those down with the air, air defense systems we have. Don't compare nuclear armed uh, uh, or the use of nuclear armed uh, missiles with uh, with what we see, what we see in, in, in Ukraine. That's a totally different story. And I mean, I've been uh, commissioner for arms control and disarmament. I, I know what I'm talking about. If you want to use that, you first destroy everything that can attack that one. So I think what we have to do, and I propose this in my book, we have to get to a to a balance of power on this one. If you get to a situation where you want to shoot, shoot down those things or avoid, I mean, forget it. This is <laughs> this is not going. This is this is this is much too easy, or it's a, it's a much too easy thought. I think. Okay, we'll be following up on that with uh, some uh, experts in our next season on Berlin Side Out when we talk about the nuclear balance in Europe and we talk about Cold War legacies in that regard, but also possibilities going forward. But I was I was interested in it because it stood out to me as one of the things that several people picked up when talking about your book. And I wondered if the experience in Ukraine would have changed your mind to the positive a little there. You've been very clear about that. It's good to good to have that point of view. But indeed, the, the more broad point about Germany needing to build up its military strength, especially in light of what's going on in the US and what may go on in the US, shouldn't we be seeing a bit more urgency? I agree. We have started a, a process. I mean, we, <laughs> we have been down to 1.2% of GDP for defense. This is really not serious. And I think this has been recognized. Uh, we, are, we are now uh, moving upwards. Uh, this turns out to be difficult because of a number of reasons, including the recent decision by the uh, verdict by the Constitutional Court. Uh, but uh, I think people have have gotten much more serious about this. We are far from where we should be, but we are we are moving into the right direction. And don't forget, Germany is not a, it's not a sailboat. Germany is a super tanker, and everything in Germany plays out on the open. In uh, in many other countries. It is much less open, uh, the, the, the discussion. And here it is open, and even uh, the German Council on Foreign Relations, or most of its scholars, have very, very clear positions on that, including me to a certain extent. 
Let's talk a little bit about the R word uh, in German-Polish uh, relations, and I'm not actually talking about reparations, although no. it's tempting to go there. <laughs> okay. I know. Well, maybe I am just a little bit, but maybe not quite in the way you think. But we're talking about reconciliation, so let's go uh, at it from here. This is something that we talked with our previous guests um, about uh, as well on our previous episode on Poland. So while it remains to be seen precisely what kind of role the discussion around reparations is going to play in, in discussions with the, the, between Berlin and uh, this new government, we did hear um, from some of our experts that uh, there are potentially projects that should be considered, uh, ways of going about reconciliation that um, may be uh, more cultural, maybe involve more of a, a look at German-Polish history rather than uh, purely financial compensation or reparations. Uh, and um, there is a lot of history to unpack there. We think of, on one hand, we think of Willy Brandt, for example, the famous uh, Kniefall, or kneeling um, at uh, in 1970 at a memorial um, to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, uh, at the same time, he was also the Chancellor of Ostpolitik, um, which is a, a sensitive issue. Um, which was a different Ostpolitik at the time. We could probably talk a lot about how, uh, whether the way that Germans remember Ostpolitik is actually what, what its original intention was or, um, or, or the framework that underpinned it. But if we think about something like an inquiry into Ostpolitik uh, as um, maybe a measure of uh, reconciliation. Do you think that would help at all? We should distinguish two things here. First, um, there is, it is quite clear that uh, Germany will always have a moral responsibility what has been done in World War II in the German name and, and by German hands. That is obvious that will, that will be a perennial, a perennial thing. And we need to be uh, empathetic about this. People need to know about what's happened. Yeah, <laughs> if ask in Germany uh, how how many people know how many how many poles died during that period, and you'll get all kinds of crazy answers. So we have to be uh, empathetic about this. We have to spread uh, knowledge about this. Now, as you know, I was chairman of the commission uh, uh, at the expert commission, Polish German expert commission. Uh, to uh, implement the resolution of the Bundestag about the place of remembrance and the um, meeting with Poles, uh, which, in, we, which we delivered our report in, in already in 2021. 20, and uh, this is, I think, this project of Ort des Erinnerns unter Begegnung is a very, very good um, example of how uh, you can actually deal with these questions because it's a, supposed to be a place uh, where uh, you can uh, think about what happened. There will be opportunities to lay wreaths, uh, to come to remember what has happened, but also a place where, where people can uh, inform themselves about that, what happened, so you know why you lay a wreath or so, or flowers, whatever. And thirdly, a place where, where specifically young people can meet and discuss these things. I think this is a perfect example of how, uh, of how one can go about uh, this remembrance. And uh, it's a pity in my view that it takes now uh, some time until, until it will be implemented. It will be implemented. The uh, um, uh, Bundesbeauftragte für Kultur und Medien for Culture and Media 
is now dealing very seriously with the matter and I hope they will come up with a final solution as soon as possible. That's the, the first, uh, or if you wish, the empathy, the first step. This, this one, uh, this uh, place of remembrance uh, and, uh, and meeting, second. And third one uh, would be some sort of humanitarian gesture. Now, one has to distinguish very clearly between uh, uh, the, the reparation issue, which is closed, which is legally, etc., politically closed, and uh, the voluntary uh, things that, that one can do in order to, to support uh, uh, either uh, uh, victims uh, of, the, of the time. I mean, they are very old now. And some of them are not in very good shape and maybe don't have enough money. Also, you can think about reconstruction of buildings. You can also think about spending a lot on, on youth exchanges so that youth can more understand what, what, has, what has gone on. So there are a number of things, and, and, but this must be considered to be voluntary. And we have had that in the past. We have had that in 1990. Uh, we have had it in the uh, uh, in the forced workers uh, agreement in the two, in two thousand three, and I myself signed an agreement on uh, uh, pensions for workers in the ghetto. So there are uh, there are these possibilities as voluntary contributions, and that makes a lot of sense. So I'm actually uh, advocating in the book as well uh, humanitarian gestures of that uh, of that nature. It's a very constructive starting point, along with that process of learning that you talked about, in order to ensure that Poland and Germany are no longer fremde, strangers, so that in future they could be freunde, friends, rather than feinde, enemies. And it's that, that mutual exchange that underpins much of what actually the success of the European Union in the past, taking the danger out of difference. And so that strikes me as a very positive way to, to proceed, but it will need those concrete steps that we've talked about to give credence to that relation. If I may come in here, because you said we are strangers, um, I think we are friends. And the order in which uh, we put it on the book, uh, enemies... Strangers, friends is a historical series. But I think we are we are friends now because first of all we have solid uh, columns on which the relationship lasts. We have an enormously positive uh, re, um, exchange between civil society, um, uh, youth exchange. Three million young Germans and Poles since 1991 have taken place in exchange programs. We have uh, partnerships between cities. We have university corporations, cooperation over the border. So there's a lot going on on, on this one. This is the first column. But the second column is, is, is the economy. Business is, is, a, is a fundamental uh, um, support for, for, the, for the general relationship. Poland, uh, I mean, Germany is, of course, the biggest trading partner of Poland, but Poland is the fifth largest, largest trading partner for Germany. So there is a huge potential here in the future to continue uh, also in this new relationship where the climate between our two countries will, will change considerably. But just to make clear, 
that we are that we are friends and that we have a solid basis on which the relationship lasts. Of course, as we've discussed on some of our previous episodes about Central Eastern Europe on Berlin Side Out, the nature of that economic relationship, as well as the fact of it, needs to be explored a little more by by all parties to see how some of the grievances by those in Central Eastern Europe in that regard can perhaps be be addressed, with the feeling very much that they are stuck in the middle income as well as middle influence trap, that despite um, being Germany's fifth largest trading partner, Poland doesn't have the influence over trade policy that, for example, some of the other high trade partners do. We know that the trading relations with the V4 overall are higher than that with China, yet the relationship with China takes first place in understanding economic policy in Germany. So those are are questions for the future. On the economic relationship, I mean, um, Poland has a positive balance with Germany. It's not not only one way, but it's a very much two-way street. Polish, more and more Polish firms find uh, investment opportunities in, in, in Germany. And there are huge possibilities. And I think that the economic relationship, yes, of course, we have a, we have a uh, German economy is bigger. Uh, but but there is, I'm, I, I tend to think that the economic business relationship is a win-win situation. This was the view of the old government. You win, we lose, and the other way around. But I think the economic relationship is a real example of how this can be a win situation. We are uh, in in Poland, uh, 300,000 jobs uh, um, are insured by German companies. This is not nothing. They pay good wages. Uh, even sometimes uh, the, the market is, is is empty because you can't find any specialists anymore. And Poland is not the work bank uh, uh, of Germany. Yeah, uh, the, the, the Poland has has developed enormously over the last couple of years. Look at the look at the IT industry. Look at the gaming industry. Poland is making a lot of headway, and and into into the good direction. And and this and and we consider this to be very positive. The more Poland develops, the better it is for the for Germany. The better it is for the German economy. My wife and myself, we were very happy there. We have lots of friends. We were there for six years. We traveled a lot in the country. I came to all sixteen voyageships. I spent even my holidays there. Not all of them. <laughs> and I have a very positive memory of all this. And uh, I consider myself uh, to have contributed um, to that bridge building uh, that is uh, so necessary and important uh, for both of our countries, but also for Europe and uh, and the and the broader NATO alliance. And everything that works against this is, I think, uh, is I think not a not a good idea. But I think we we are moving into the right direction, and I'm very upbeat about the future. That ends on a very positive note. Rolf Nickel, thank you very much indeed for sharing your insights with us today. We've heard a lot of themes that resonate throughout our coverage of Central and Eastern Europe and Germany's relations with its closest partners, where there's real scope to improve the value it gets from its friendships, both in geostrategic terms, but also in cultural and economic terms for all sides to benefit. And that's something we're going to be continue to look at uh, in the coming episodes of Berlin Side Out, which will take us slightly further afield, won't they, Aaron? Indeed. Uh, we are headed uh, next week, actually, uh, to Paris, where a lot of the issues that we've been discussing uh, about Germany's relationships 
uh, with its Central and Eastern European partners uh, will come to the fore. Of course, we heard about uh, a lot of those issues today um, with Poland specifically. Uh, thanks very much to Rolf Nickel for joining us um, for a look at that. You can find out uh, more about him and his book and other recent work in our show notes. Uh, please uh, join us in the future as we look uh, transatlantically and uh, at Paris. We hope you'll join us then. For now, though, until next time from Berlin, Cinque, Danke, and Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> Thank you very much. Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen.